As we go to consider God's word together, let's ask him to open it to us. Let us pray together. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. And gladden the souls of your servants, for to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For we know that you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So we pray that you would give ear to our prayer, that you would listen to our plea for grace, that you would teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that in many of our Pew Bibles on page 727. Isaiah is right in the middle of our Bibles, really between the Song of Solomon and the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 7. We want to begin our reading at verse 1 and read through verse 8 of chapter 8. Um, it's, a, it's a large text, and we're not going to try to treat all the portions of it, but I do think it hangs together as a section in Isaiah, and so we want to read all of that together. So we'll begin our reading at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is the prophecy of Isaiah that, that contains that wonderful messianic promise that the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we want to think about this text of Scripture together. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning our reading at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised this evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand And it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the deep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hajbaz, and I will get a reliable witness, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hajbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Israel of Assyria. The Lord spoke again to me, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that, that, right, that promise that comes in the middle of this is the promise that we enjoy hearing about and considering. And we know that in Matthew's gospel, he picks up this promise as a prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ. But it comes in a very perplexing setting. It comes really in a setting of judgment. This well-known prophecy that comes that we so associate with the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ is really a condemnation. Um, last week, we considered a text from Numbers 24, and maybe you thought, why on earth are we doing this for Christmas? Uh, this is maybe a little more easily connected to Christmas, as Matthew connects it in Matthew 1 to the birth of Jesus Christ, fulfilling this prophecy that the virgin would conceive and bear a son. But the surrounding context of this prophecy um, is very strange and very difficult. Um, it was a wonderful promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but this prophecy and this promise come really in the context of terror and trouble. Uh, that's where we find ourselves in this text. 
Uh, last time in Numbers 24, we were way back when Israel was still in the wilderness. Now we fast forwarded hundreds of years, nearly 800 years after the division of the kingdom. Uh, this is maybe around the 730s, maybe we could even say 734 BC. So about, you know, some almost 800 years after the time we looked at last week. And it's a real time of crisis, a real time of difficulty for the people of God. And it's this setting of difficulty, this setting of terror and trouble where the context for this promise of Messiah uh, is given to us. And so we want to think about this, this prophecy and what it means for the coming Emmanuel, God with us, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage, we really see the call to faith, we see the cost of failure, and we see the cause for hope. And that's how we want to think about this text together. The call to faith, the cost of failure, and the cause for hope. Um, we might think of, again, this promise as being this wonderful Christmas promise that we think about, but we see the context it comes in is anything but wonderful or hopeful. Uh, the historical circumstances are laid out in verses 1 through 3, and many of us are not experts on what was happening in geopolitics in this region uh, in the 700s BC, but this was a time when Assyria as a conquering power was on the rise, and many in Palestine realized that this was coming, uh, the conquest of Assyria was coming, and so they were trying to band together and form an alliance. Um, and Syria is in the north, and Israel and Ephraim in this text are the same. Uh, it's two words for the same thing. The ten northern tribes that broke off, they're trying to put an alliance of Palestinian states together to try to resist this Assyrian onslaught, and they want Judah to be part of it, where Hezekiah is king, but thus far he's refused to be part of their alliance. And so as the Lord lays it out for us here, their plan is to attack Judah, to take it, to depose its king, and to put their own puppet king on the throne who will do the things that they want done in this area, to try to secure themselves against an impending Assyrian invasion. And at this time, Judah is surrounded by enemies already, so to hear that two near neighbors are planning an attack, knowing there are already all kinds of people around you that are hostile to you, as we're told in this text, it makes everybody nervous. Uh, Judah at this time is facing serious foreign threats. And they hear of these neighbors planning to do what they're going to do um, to, to try to depose uh, the, D David's son from the throne in Jerusalem, and it makes everybody terrified. As we read in verse 2, their hearts all shook like trees in the forest before the wind. Uh, they're terrified of what's going to happen. And we see in the context of this prophecy that these foreign threats also pose to God's people a spiritual threat. Um, as this foreign threat mounts, there's a mounting temptation that poses a spiritual threat to God's people which is to try to seek a worldly political solution to their problem. Um, the temptation that King Ahaz is facing is really to go and to seek help from Assyria. To say, you know, we're, we're not going to band against you. We don't want to join this anti-Assyria this anti coalition. So would you come and help us? Uh, would you come and be our help? And that's the temptation to seek this worldly political alliance instead of trusting to God's divine power. Instead of going to God as their God, who's promised to be 
their refuge and their strength, their protector and defender, instead of going to God and seeking his help and seeking his protection, that they're tempted to go seek for a worldly political solution to their problem. And so they're facing not only this foreign threat, but this serious spiritual threat. And as is God's way to his people in trouble, what does he do? He sends a gospel word of good news. He sends Isaiah along with his son to come and speak to the king and to give him powerful assurance that God will help them. Right? That God will come and he will defend his people. Because all of Judah might be afraid. The house of David might be afraid. Ahaz might be afraid. Everybody might be afraid. But the one person who's not afraid of them is God. From God's perspective, they're nothing to worry about. He describes the two of them as smoking stubs of firewood. Have you ever had a bonfire or a campfire that's going out um, and the wood is smoking and it's getting in your eyes? Boys and girls, have you ever been around a campfire that's smoking in your face? Um, It's not really giving off any light. It's not giving off any heat. It's just smoking. It's not really good for anything at that point. Um, And that's what God is saying, these two kings. It's kind of a play on words when Isaiah says, you know, they're burning anger of these two smoldering stumps. It's God's way of saying these, these guys are not worth worrying about. I know what they're planning. I know exactly what they're planning. Let's go up. Let's capture Jerusalem. Let's terrify it. Let's tear down their king. Let's put up our own. God even knows who they're planning on putting on the throne. And what is God's word about all of that plan? What is God's evaluation of it? It will not stand, and it will not come to pass. It will not stand, and it will not come to pass. Whatever they're planning, it's not going to work. It's it's four short words in Hebrew. If we wanted to bring it into English, it would be simply, won't stand, won't happen. That's the divine word to the power and the plans of these enemies. Because who stands opposed to these two kings? Who is saying to them, it will not stand, it will not happen? It's the Lord God who says it. The Lord God. Adonai Yahweh says, it will not stand, it will not come to pass. Adonai is that wonderful word that just means Lord or Master. When applied to God, it just means Lord and master of all. He is the master of all. He is the covenant Lord. He is Yahweh who's made promises to his people, who's covenanted with his people, who's covenanted with the house of their king. That's why we sang Psalm 132. It reminds us of the promises that were made to David. The promises, and King Ahaz is a king in David's line. God is reminding them of who he is. Um, And God exhorts Ahaz to remember that fundamental difference between what it means to be God's people and part of God's covenant and what it means to not be part of God's people and not be part of God's covenant. I think that's why we have this kind of what might seem to us strange rehearsal of who these people are in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. The head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Why is that important? 
Or why is it important that the head of Ephraim or Israel is Samaria, that's their capital city, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, that's their king? Why is God bringing their attention to these countries and these capitals and these kings? Because it's God's way of saying, do these countries and these capitals and these kings mean anything to me? Is Syria my country? Is Damascus my capital? Is their king my king? No. And even with the the northern kingdoms, Ephraim, the Lord is saying, that's not the true and continuing people of God. They're the ones that have broken away from my king. The head of Ephraim is now Samaria. The head of Israel is Samaria. It's not Jerusalem. And the king that sits on the throne in Samaria is not a son of David. He's a son of Ramalia. God is saying in covenant terms, these are countries and capitals and kings that mean nothing to me. They have no covenant significance before Adonai Yahweh. And what is he encouraging Ahaz to remember? I think he's encouraging him to remember his country and his capital and whose king he is. I think by implication, God is saying to him, and your country is Judah, and your capital is Jerusalem, where I've chosen to make my name dwell, and you are not a son of Romalia, you are a son of David. And I made promises to David too about his sons and his throne. Remember who you are, And remember whose you are. And seek help only in him. The promises are with you. The Lord is with you. You don't have to seek help from anyone else. The Lord will help you. What do you need to do? You need to put your faith and trust in the Lord. If you are not firm in faith, he says at the end of verse 9, you will not be firm at all. This is the crucial moment for Ahaz, this call to faith. Everything is at stake here. Will he trust the Lord? We could say this is the moment of faith or bust for his kingdom. Either he will trust the Lord or he will fall. That's what really is being put before him. Because the stakes are so high, because this moment is so important, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign to confirm the word I've spoken to you. And I'm going to let you choose the sign and you make it as big as you want it to be. Um, There are people that have come to God and requested signs and there have been big signs that God has given people. This is a somewhat unique moment when God comes to someone and says, you ask me for a sign and you choose what you want. And you make it as big as you want. Right? That's the force of him saying, make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Make it as big a thing as you ask from me, and I will do it. It's an amazing thing for God to do, right? To come and offer him a blank check like this. Um, That's what he's really calling him to do. 
to trust in God, to trust in his power. This is a remarkable promise to make, not just because of how big this promise is, but because of how the promise comes to him. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz in verse 10, ask a sign of the Lord your God. That's remarkable, that God would describe himself as the Lord your God. Because Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings that was ever on David's throne. If we were putting together a wicked king hall of shame, he'd be top five. He was a rampant idolater. We're told that he was so intent on false worship that he offered worship on every high place, on every hill, and under every green tree. He went and saw a foreign altar and thought that would be a really good idea to set up in the temple. And he moved God's bronze altar off to the side. Um, he offered his own sons as burning sacrifices, which every son of David would know if I'm not the Messiah, then my son might be. So to do that as the king is a particularly heinous act. He was a wicked king. He was one of the most wicked kings there was. And yet, how does God come to him? Ask a sign of the Lord your God. God is still willing to be found by this rampant sinner if he will but turn to him in faith. This fact about our God should give every sinner hope. That God is willing to be found by the worst of sinners if they will but put their faith and trust in him. If God was willing to be Ahaz's God, he's willing to be the God of any who seek him. If you're a sinner far from God this morning, this should give you hope that he's willing to be found by sinners who put their trust in him, willing to be called their God. It's a remarkable promise. It's a remarkable offer uh, to have Ahaz come to him in faith. That's why the stakes are so big and the sign is so big. What is at stake? It's his soul. If you're not firm in the faith, you personally will not be firm at all. His soul is at stake. His kingdom is at stake. If you will not be firm, your kingdom will not be firm at all. In a sense, the whole house of David is at stake. If you will not be firm, your house will fall. And this is part of the context that maybe does not strike us, but as one commentator said, in terms of this text, David's house is sinking fast. We're reminded here, these are the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Uzziah was a powerful king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And his kingdom was powerful and successful. He was a conqueror over his enemies. In his pride, he entered into the temple to offer sacrifice, and he was struck with leprosy. But it's still remembered of him that he was a good king who did what was right in the eyes of his Lord, and under him the kingdom was strong. And then his son Jotham began to rule, and Jotham was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and didn't enter into the temple. And he was powerful on account of his faith in the Lord. And he triumphed over enemies, but he died relatively young. And now his son has taken over, and his son is about as wicked as can be. The house of David is sinking fast. 
You might remember Isaiah 6 begins in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah was a good king who died. We could almost say this text begins by saying after King Jotham died, who was also a good king. This is a pivotal moment of crisis. And the thing that comes before him is for your soul, for your kingdom, for your house, will you trust the Lord? And I think before we move on to see what he does in response to God's call, we have to recognize that this question is still before us as individuals and still before us as a church. In whom will we trust? In whom will we trust for our own souls? Will we put our faith and trust in God to save us? This passage calls us to put our trust in God alone to save us from our sins. But it also calls on the church to trust in God to save us. Um, We talked about this last week, about the crisis we see facing the church in this world all around us, and we can be tempted to do as a church what Ahaz did, put our hope and trust in worldly power and in worldly political solutions to our problems. We can be tempted to think You know what the church really needs is the right person in the White House or control the Congress or control the Supreme Court. That's what will really save us in this world. If we could just have that power, if we could just have that power to help us, it faces the same temptation that faced the kingdom of Judah to form alliances with the world thinking we can save ourselves that way. And this should be a cautionary reminder to us that like Assyria, the worldly political powers we might seek to ally ourselves with can never really save us from the dangers we face. Worldly political power cannot save the church. And as one commentator said, the issue is as clear-cut as that. Will Ahaz seek salvation by works, namely by political alliances, or by simple trust in divine promises? And I bring that up and I make that point because I'm very concerned that too many Christians are putting too much hope and stock in political solutions to the problems that face God's people today. And I want to be carefully understood here. I'm not saying that politics are not important and that they're not worth spending our time on, but they will not save us. They will not save us. And we don't need their power to save us because we have a God who has power to save his people. He is our hope. He is our trust. He is all the power God's people have ever needed. And the crucial question is, will we trust him? Will we trust God to be God? Will we trust God to keep the promises he's made to his people? The major question here is the question of faith. As one person said, In whom would Ahaz, the royal house, and the people of Judah trust? In Yahweh's promise or in Assyria's power? Who is the Savior in our distress? It's the question he faced. It's the question we face. And we have to see what he did and understand the cost of failure. Because that's what he does. He fails. He completely rejects God's call to faith. 
when God holds out that blank check to Ahaz, he says, in effect, I don't want it. That's the effect of his response in verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Um, He sounds trying to sound pious. We know it's wrong to put the Lord to the test. But doing what the Lord has told you to do is not putting him to the test. In fact, when he tells you to do something and you don't do it, that's putting him to the test. And that's why this sign that's offered to confirm his faith, when he refuses to put his faith in the Lord, God says, okay, I offered you a sign, now I'm going to impose a sign. And it won't be a sign that will confirm your faith, it'll be a sign that confirms your judgment. And it will be a sign that reminds you that in your rejection, everything is lost. Notice how Isaiah responds to that statement in verse 12 by, Isaiah, by Ahaz. Isaiah says, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? That signals the rejection. The Lord your God is willing to give you a sign. I don't want a sign. Okay, then hear what the Lord my God has to say to you. He's no longer your God. You've refused that offer. Um, It's a sign that Ahaz in this rejection has lost his soul. Because God is not his God. It's a sign that Ahaz has lost his kingdom. That's the effect of what's said in verse 15. When this, by the time this child comes into the world, he will eat curds and honey. I don't know if you like curds, cottage cheese. Um, it's not the food of blessing and prosperity. Never, no one ever hopes to eat unlimited cottage cheese in heaven. Um, maybe you do. Maybe someone's got to be buying this stuff, right? Um, but as we find later on in this text, this is a sign of judgment. Um, And Isaiah, who's famous for plays on words, is maybe playing with words here when he says, you know, the land flowing with milk has become a land of curdled milk. It'll become a land of judgment where people will barely be able to squeak out, eke out an an existence in the land. This will be a time of judgment on the kingdom. This is the food of poverty as verse 22 tells us, eaten in a land ravaged by war and enemy occupation. Um, Because of this, Judah will be crushed. That's really the effect of verses 21 to 25, to say her people will be impoverished and her land will be destroyed and decayed. And interestingly, God says, Assyria is the one who will do it. The people you thought you could trust are the ones who will come in and do it. Because we know from our, from our scriptures that Ahaz did trust himself to Assyria, sought them to defend him, and they did bring ruin on his enemies. But they didn't stop with his enemies. They came in and brought unparalleled and ongoing desolation to the land of Judah. In Hezekiah's day, they do come up to his neck. Almost everything in Judah is overtaken and overrun by Assyria, except for Jerusalem. Um, It's a reminder, as one person put it, that the rulers of this age can easily seduce our own faith. They seem to be so much more promising than Yahweh's mere word. 
But he said, you know, Assyria will be like bees that settle in every crevice of the land. And they will strip the people and the land bare. They will be like a flood that overwhelms everything. And when the flood is coming at your enemies in Syria and Israel, you'll cheer. But that flood will sweep right on into you. They're not to be trusted. They're not to be relied on. Because of this, you've lost your soul. You'll lose your kingdom. And the house of David will be forever struck. Verse 13 is very interesting because it's not just a word of condemnation on Ahaz. It's a word of condemnation in the plural. Who is Isaiah talking to here in the spirit of the Lord? He says, hear then, O house of David. And those are plurals. Is it too little for you all to weary men that you all weary my God also? Um, This is not just a word about Ahaz. This is a word of what David's house has come to. One person said, it's as if the whole history of human inadequacy suddenly passes before Isaiah's eyes. From the beginning, David's house has failed to live up to its divine calling. It has produced neither the perfect king nor the golden age, but rather the reverse. And this word of judgment is for the whole house. Is it too much for you to weary men that you all weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a judgment that's being pronounced over the house of David. And how is the virgin conception of Emmanuel a judgment on the house of David? It's saying God will not forget his promise. God will bring forth a son from the house of David, but he'll do so without the help of the sons of David. The sons of David won't have anything to do with this son coming into the world. God will do it on his own without you. You see how that's a judgment on the house of David? That the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel? This is really showing the collapse of any human hope in the sons of David. No man coming from the house of David will have anything to do with this coming child. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. One commentator put it in very stark terms. He said, the cost of Ahaz's failure is that from the time of Ahaz, there was never again a house of David in the true sense, but only a line of puppet pretend kings under foreign domination until at the end of the exile, even they disappeared into the sand of history, never to reemerge. The name of the overlord power would change from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece and finally to Rome before Emmanuel would be born. But when he was born, it was to share the poverty of his people, to inherit a non-existent earthly throne, and to feel the full weight of the oppressor. The blame for all of this rested on Ahaz and on his failure to believe the Lord's word. And again, you may be thinking, Merry Christmas. Where is the hope? Where is the hope to be found? Of course, the cause for hope in this passage is the Emmanuel who will come. That's where hope is found in this passage. Um, There's glimmers of hope in the the names that Isaiah's sons are given. 
If you're thinking about names for children in the future, we've got some good ones here. Shir Jashub has a ring to it. Meher Shalal Hajbaz um, might make kindergarten a little tough when you're learning how to write your name. But, um, but these names are meant to be signs to God's people. Shir Jashub is a name that means a remnant shall return. It held out the hope to God's people in that living, walking sign that a remnant would return, that God would not forsake his promises to his people. And Meher Shalal Hajbaz's name means essentially, you know, swift to the spoil, quick to the plunder. It's what Assyria will do to these two enemies, Syria and Israel. There's a little bit of hope contained even in those names, that God's promises will not be forgotten. But of course, the great cause for hope is in the Emmanuel who will be born, whose name doesn't mean a remnant will return or that the enemy will be quick to despoil your enemies. His name means God with us. God with us. And he will be a king. That's why we read all the way through chapter 8, verse 8, because it ends by saying, there's a terrible situation that will be on the land in your day, O Emmanuel. The fact that it's Emmanuel's land tells us that Emmanuel is a king. And even though he will be born into poverty, eating curds and honey in a land overshadowed and flooded with enemies, the land will be his land, and the throne may have no earthly glory or power, but he will be a king nevertheless. And what will this experience of Emmanuel coming in and entering into the destruction and poverty of his people do? Well, verse 15 tells us it's going to have a blessed effect on him. Um, uh, Now, in verse 15, we're told, he shall eat curds and honeys when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But I think the force of the Hebrew there is better captured by the King James Version that says, curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. It's not a when so much as it's a purpose. What is the purpose of Emmanuel entering into the destruction of of the people? Is that he will know that his house did this. That his house is responsible for this. And why did this come? Because his house could not refuse the evil. And it could not choose the good. That was the major problem with the house of David. It couldn't refuse the evil and choose the good. And that's what will bring all this destruction. And so what Isaiah is saying is when Emmanuel comes in the world, he will look around and say, what is the cause of this destruction? That we did not know what to do. And what is the promise here? He will know what to do. And he will be one who refuses the evil and who chooses the good and who will reverse the ruin. You know, the sad story of Ahaz is a story of riches to rags. That's what he drove the kingdom to. But the cause for hope that Isaiah gives us is when Emmanuel comes in the world, he'll cause the kingdom to go from rags to riches. He's going to enter into the ruin that's been brought. And Matthew reminds us of the state of that ruin. Having, having their parents have to go to take a census because Caesar Augustus is over all the land. And then having to flee for their lives because King Herod is ruling over the land. It's a land under domination. It's a land of suffering. 
the Lord will enter into a family of poverty. But nevertheless, he will be the king. And he will be the king the house of David was always looking for and never had. What were they always looking for? One who would be the perfect king who would usher in the golden age. And what is the promise? He will be the divine king you're looking for. He will be God with us. He will be the perfect king who knows how to choose the good and refuse the evil. And because of his life and because of his death on the cross and because of his resurrection, he will bring the kingdom from ruin to restoration and eventually bring it to resurrection glory. And when he comes again in glory, then we will see the golden age of the church in the new heavens and the new earth. It won't be a land of cottage cheese. It'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, We will be raised with him to resurrection glory. That's the story of Christmas. The coming of Emmanuel who raises up the restored kingdom. And what Matthew will tell us clearly is the birth of Jesus Christ is the coming of Emmanuel. He is God with us. God with us to save us from our sins. First by dying on the cross and rising from the grave for our justification. And soon by returning to judge the living and the dead. And to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this year we can be thankful in this time that Emmanuel has come, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is reigning at the right hand of our Father in heaven. May we be those who live by faith, putting all of our trust in him alone. May we live in the hope of the day that's coming soon and the return to glory in glory that will make all things new. And until he comes, may we continue to thank God for fulfilling his promise and giving us this Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God with us now and forever. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you that out of such a situation of terror and trouble and failure, you can bring such glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the answer to the prayers of all your people and the remedy to all of our failures. We pray that we would be a people and a church that only ever put all our trust in him and look for salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among heaven or on the earth given among men by which we must be saved. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in him forever. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.